Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash leftanchor. Uh, if you want to support the show and get access to extra episodes, um, you can sign up there. If not, that's also fine. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Let's get started. Uh, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek, and today we're very excited to have Jeff Dempsey running in the Democratic primary for the PA 175th against the villainous Mary Isaacson, and we'll get into that. So we're super excited to have a individual donor-funded progressive here to talk to us about his campaign, the movement behind it, and how and why everyone should support to win. So welcome, Jeff. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. We, we should also note for our audience that this is our first live audience in studio we're very excited can we hear some cheers from the from the background the crowd yeah there it is (laughs) and uh of course jeff's here in in studio with us as well um you know trekking all over the city having just done some good canvassing i hear is that right yeah yeah and it's uh it's pretty brutal out tonight it's pretty cold Cold. uh yeah it came out of nowhere but you know when you know in a race like this doors are, are fundamentally important and we've been doing them since last june so wonderful that's great well, maybe start for us telling us about how you decided to get into this race, maybe a little bit of your background in, in politics generally and, and in the area. Sure. Um, so my background is in Pennsylvania's gun violence prevention movement. For five years, I served as the program director for an organization called Ceasefire PA. We tried to change gun laws in Pennsylvania. Uh, I ran all of their educational programming, and I got to inform some of their legislative strategy. And I even got to work on a bill that passed two years ago that took guns away from domestic abusers. Um, That's just the tip of the iceberg of the Commonwealth's gun problem. But it was the first gun control bill to pass out of the legislature in 23 years. Wow. Um, Wow. PA is a a weird Commonwealth to do this sort of work. Indeed. How long is, I mean, it's probably as long as you could choose to make it based on all the effort that went into it. But is there is there a short version of how you're able to do something for the first time in 23 years with respect to that issue? Yeah, I I mean, you know, I I, I don't want to give too much credit to the other side. But I think it was definitely showing the Republicans who control the legislature that they have a problem within their own district. You know, for years, groups like the NRA, you know, really playing on people sort of, um, they used a lot of coded language to say things like, well, you don't have a gun violence problem here, you know, or that's just an urban problem. And we know what they're heavily insinuating. We know that that's just sort of racist code words. But, you know, generations of legislators and folks hearing this make them think, we don't have homicides where I live, so therefore we don't have a gun problem. And it ignores things like suicides, it ignores domestic violence issues, and ignores intimate partner death. So, you know, I think it was, you know, there were a lot of efforts to try to show legislators from those parts of the Commonwealth, hey, look, you do have a problem in your district, this is going on, you need to address it. it was, it's an interesting combination of racism isn't true, but also racist live matters too as well. Like we should care about racists killing themselves and killing each well, other. And, yeah. I mean, we're talking in this bill specifically, you know, intimate partners, right? So like the, right, the, no, par- the partners of racists, right? right? right. Um, you know, and, and Pennsylvania loses about 100 intimate partners a year. 53 usually are with, with guns. It's the number mm. one sort of means of fatality amongst intimate partner death in, mm. in the Commonwealth. So, I mean, it's certainly something that's there. But, I mean, again, this is just the tip of the iceberg. But that's right. how we were able this to is, do it, was mm. showing Republicans, look, this is going on in your backyard, too. And I would hope that, you know, moderate Republicans or scared Republicans saw that they did something right and that the walls didn't come tumbling down and Wayne LaPierre didn't come in in a black hop helicopter and, you know, try to take out their district so that 
maybe God willing, they'll grow a little bit of a conscience and continue down this track of doing the right thing. So this is a bipartisan bill. Yeah, I mean, so unfortunately, Republicans control the Pennsylvania state legislature, right. so they really dictate what runs. Um, so it was a it was a bipartisan bill. How many How many did you get? Was it like most of the party or? Yeah, I mean, it was. It, so I think the there were about. Oh, I, you know, I'm a little hard pressed to remember. But I think there were about 20 people in the House who didn't vote for it. And then uh, there were about five people in the Senate who didn't. And I remember it was really jarring hearing some of the arguments against this bill. It, it was the <laughs> same week as the Kavanaugh hearing. So I was in Harrisburg on like a Tuesday listening to state reps stand up. And one of them literally said um, that there's no real way, you know, there's no threshold to get a protection from abuse order. And they had said, well, you know, I'm a tall guy. So someone can get a protection from abuse order against me for being tall. And I'm just sitting in the gallery <laughs> thinking, what the fuck, right? Like, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and then two days later was, was Chris, you know, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testifying. And, you know, the, the legislators in D.C. sort of treating it as if, well, you, you must be mistaken. The, yeah. There's an amazing ability of people who are part of groups that oppress others to cast themselves as victims for, for almost any reason. Sure. It's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you were able to to work with the other side on that. Do you, do you think, given the the PA state legislature's uh, makeup in that way, that uh, it's easier or harder for more progressive candidates to kind of get done what they want to get done without compromising their values? I mean, I think it's I think it's hard, but I mean, I think that there's always a path to do it, right? So I mean, you know, there were a lot of rounds of negotiations with this specific bill. And there was a moment where, you know, they wanted the, the NRA wanted something that was just a bridge too far for us that we thought was too dangerous and undermined the whole bill. And as a movement, we were prepared to walk away from it. So, I mean, I think it's having those those red lines, knowing, you know, how much you can give on these things and keeping in mind what really matters. But look, if we go down that track, then you end up with legislators who, who kind of start from the middle, you know, and we see this as, as Democrats, as progressives all the time that like... You know, this third way of thinking, you know, starts us from the middle. And then when they actually get into those negotiating rooms, just ends up much further to the right than anybody ever really wanted. And it kind of betrays the whole idea behind the policy to begin with. Yeah. You know, and that's not the legislator I want to be. I mean, you know. So so you're running for one, 125? 175. 175. It's close. Um, yeah. You know, what's 50 districts? <laughs> in it? But uh, so so tell us uh, tell us a little bit about this this district. Uh, what it's part of Philly, right? Like yep. what's a, what's a, uh, the sort of location? What sort of folks live there? And, um, you know, why do you want to uh, take that seat? Sure. So, you know. It's just to kind of go over the makeup of the district. Uh, it's all in Philadelphia. It's uh, kind of hugs the 95 corridor. The rough way of thinking about it is it goes from Lehigh to Washington and then from the water to about fifth. Okay. Um, so. And that's a little rough because there's some slivers north, some slivers south. It actually has Chinatown in the district, which isn't in those parameters. Um, but the neighborhoods that it really has the bulk of it, uh, Fishtown, East Kensington, Northern Liberties, um, Society Hill, Old City, Queen Village. So for people who aren't from Philly, like that's sort of correct me if I'm wrong. I moved here not very long ago, like sort of the east and eastern side, the sort of central city, uh, that kind of central area, and then points north and south of that a bit. Yeah, and it, it, it encompasses some of the oldest neighborhoods in Philadelphia. So because yeah. of its proximity to the Delaware River, you have neighborhoods like Fishtown and Northern Liberties, um, and obviously Old City, which encompasses you know 
the birthplace of American democracy, right? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you, yeah. you, you have you have these sorts of areas. Um, you know, the, the type of people, it's very engaged, very well educated. I mean, it's not to say that it doesn't have its problems, but I mean, it's a D plus 30 seat. And it's one of the rare seats where Donald Trump underperforms Mitt Romney, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, is, it is very liberal. Now, you know, for me, this race poses an existential question about what kind of progressive values do we really want representing us? Because it's a district that, you know, quite frankly, despite it being engaged, obviously, as we, you know, it's hard not to get distracted by the president's daily tweet or some craziness that's going on from the White House. It's easy to lose track of what's going on locally, right? And local politics. And He he did just say that a miracle might cure the coronavirus. (laughs) So... I mean, he's got Mike Pence, right? Yeah, like, I mean, you, know, um, you know, and look, and there's a lot of, you know, local journalists are, you know, having to be stretched thinner and get yep. fewer resources than ever before. So it's really hard to stay, uh, you know, keep up with local politics. So the reason that I think this race is an existential race is because, you know, you can have a, a legislator who all they do is send grant money to, you know, the fashion district and then brag about how much they're boosting the economy. Or you can have a legislator who wants to go in and really tackle some of the systemic ills that, you know, all of society talks about. You know, I yeah. always say this is if we're not trying the most progressive policies here, you can't do it anywhere else. I mean, we can be the Petri dish that grows these ideas that we can take to the Commonwealth. And if or what we can have is someone who goes along, gets along, sends out a bunch of, you know, progressive tweets and looks you in the eye and says, well, I'm with you on that issue. And that's yeah. not, you know, so that's what I think the difference is. Um, my background's in issue advocacy. I fight for the things I believe in. Uh, and I'd like to do that for, the, for my friends and neighbors in the 175th. And what's the, uh, what's the demographics like? Um, so it's about 60, 63 to 65% uh, white, about 16% um, Hispanic. And, you know, I think the, the rest would be sort of, um, uh, I, I would imagine somewhat of an even split between African-Americans and, and sort of Asian-Americans. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a mostly white educated district. So again, we kind of run into this, you know, wh- what kind of legislator do they want? Right. Because we can, yeah. all, we can all be good on certain issues. Jeff, what we really want yeah. to hear, can you convince the rich to be class traders? Cause that's what we need. <laughs> we really, we need you to convince those rich people that, yeah. uh, f- just not just for their good, for their kids, for the future that capitalism is destroying everything. Yeah. I, I don't know how much convincing it's going to take in the sense that I think that there's a genuine concern so I think there's a genuine respect for the size of government, right? I think there's a respect for government as an institution that can play a role to helping people's lives. I think that most folks really want to help individuals in need. They recognize that the economy is not working for a lot of people, that it's leaving a lot of people behind. You know, I have lots of um, there's civil rights attorneys. You know, one of my neighbors is actually she's a death row attorney. So I don't think I need to convince her that, you know, there's there's a problem where government's not working for the vast majority of people and leaving a lot of folks behind. So I don't think it's that. I would say that for some of the other voters, it's this idea that, you know, is it is it easy to take your eye off this race just enough to let someone creep in who undermines democracy by circumventing the electorate, which the incumbent has, or, you know, um, earlier this year, at the behest of their major campaign contributors, voted on a bill that throws undocumented citizens under the bus. So, you know, these things are a little harder to keep up with. And, you know, I'm running a people-funded race against someone who's, you know, who's extremely well-funded. And there are challenges with that. So I I don't know how much convincing it's going to take. I think they're there. The question is, do they realize who's representing them currently? And can they peel back the veneer of progressivism that comes in a glossy direct mail piece 
just enough to realize what their record is and how dangerous this person might be. Wonderful. Are you finding that successful when you knock on the doors? Do they know Mary Isaacson? Do they know about her corruption? Or, or? Well, the, the, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Okay. So when you ignore the electorate right. uh, and you circumvent them and you don't need their vote to get office, lot, not, a lot of people don't know you, right? Conversely, yeah. if all they know you is that, oh, you came to my kid's school and talked or something like that, then it's a little, you know, you can build up a name ID that way. What we've been, you know, since we've been doing doors since last June, the response that we've been getting is overwhelmingly positive. People have never been talked to or asked for their vote, you know, looked in the eye and asked for their vote. And when we talk about the issues, I think they appreciate our courage, you know, whether it's on safe injection sites and a clear, unabashed support of them and an actual call for an expansion to female user specific only safe injection sites, or whether it's, you know, something like increase the minimum wage. We're doing something about guns. I mean, we're very unabashed about our issues, and I think they appreciate that courage. Yeah. Um, I mean, this this maybe gets into a, a aspect of, like, Philly in particular, but, but maybe you could tell us about sort of the rest of the state as well, is that, like, there's a machine in, in the, Demo- the Democratic Party machine, like, runs the, the city of, of Philadelphia, and it's like structurally part of the government almost there's like official like uh like ward captains or whatever i'm not i'm not exactly clear on how it works uh entirely but like um so there's there's this this difficulty in in like as as the machine you know it's it's very different from how like tammany hall used to work tammany hall was very corrupt but like the sort of mechanism of it was if you're plugged in, you get a job, your cousin gets a job, you get a turkey on Christmas, you get a, a, a jigger of whiskey when it's voting day. Like, like there's a, there's a relationship between yeah. you and the constituents. And these, these days, it seems like the machine is much more just about straight up looting, like, like just taking the money for you, yourself, like the people that, that, that you, uh, you know, you know, personally getting these consulting contracts and so on. And um, the idea that you need to sort of cut the citizenry in on the, you know, on the take is it's it's like, well, maybe that would be better than this current system. At least somebody would get a little, you know, spread it out a little bit. But so are you are you struggling to get over that the 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 sort of hump between, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we're Democrats in this very progressive party. The person, the incumbent's a Democrat, therefore they must hold these values and just sort of. You know, being like, no, that's not how it works. You know, you, you got to look at like the sort of behind the scenes maneuvering and so on. Well, so I think I think a couple of things, you know, the the political machine um, is really, <laughs> you know, there's there's only a couple of, like industrial eastern seaboard cities that really have this kind of structure still in place. Right. So like yeah. Chicago, uh, Boston, to a, a lesser extent, Philadelphia, New York, um, New York. Yeah. So, you know. I guess what I would say is this. What we've seen over the years is that the Democratic City Committee, that's the machine's formal name, right? Democratic City Committee, um, in my opinion, with the exception of a few wards, and there are a few, but they are the minority, it's much more about deference and homage to itself as an institution than to any sort of ideology. So it doesn't yeah. really matter how progressive you may be or, or you're, you know, you're, you're the way that we want you to be on policy. It's really just about do you pay in to it? Now, yeah. there are some elections in Philadelphia where the machine can really make a huge impact. So city council elections, right, where there's tons of candidates, 
um, low information. You know, you may not know all yeah. of the 35 candidates yeah. who run for council at large. Who the hell are these? Sure. Yeah. You know, and the machine can step in and say, hey, look, you know, my um, this ward leader has committee people who can be at all the polls and they'll they'll do it. And then those those board leaders usually just shake candidates down for money. It's just yeah. a shake now, right? It's like, <laughs> give me some money and we'll put you on the ballot and these people are going to support you. And and maybe maybe you don't actually make it onto the ballot anyway. And by the yeah. ballot, I mean the little paper that obnoxious people hand you outside the polls, <laughs> right? So the state level races can be different, yeah, right? You know, you have people who are a little bit more engaged. They're reading about who their state senator might be, their state representative. They're making their own decision. And it doesn't really matter what the ward leaders do. Here's what's interesting about the 175th. The previous state representative was ill, and he ran for re-election in the primary knowing he didn't want to complete his term. And what happens is he wins in the primary handedly, um, and then he goes into the summer, and two days before the deadline, removes his name from the ballot. And when that <laughs> happens, this is what homage into the machine gets you. This now sets up a, a, a mechanism where those ward leaders, who I might add are, are not democratically elected by anyone— Right. They actually get to pick the replacement on the ballot. So they all right. So they don't so have they went and talked to all the citizens and <laughs> to find the best, most virtuous, excellent possible candidate. Right? Yeah. No, they did not. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. right. So, just, you know, yeah. I thought okay. um, one one ward leader, um, uh, Nikhil Saval, who's running for state Senate, and he, he tried to have candidates come. Um, and present in front of his committee people. He thought that that was the best way to do it. I actually presented in front of the the folks in his ward and got a plurality of the votes, but was not able to secure the supermajority needed for them to, to kind of make a consensus. But nevertheless, the rest of the ward leaders, they did nothing. And I remember even calling them saying, are you going to have a process? You're going to talk to people. One person said, I don't have to. And the, <laughs> and the other person That's told That's the spirit? Yeah. Well, and the, the next one's better. They had said... Um, well, we already have a place booked for the press conference on Tuesday. And I was like, well, that's not really a reason good enough to subvert democracy. The fix is in, right. sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You so, seem confused about how this <laughs> process... Sure. Yeah. Why are you talking to me? I don't care. Right, right. And then, and you know, so Representative Isaacson gets onto the ballot. She runs unopposed in the general election because, again, there's no Republicans who, who put themselves up for this. And, you know, not surprisingly, all of those ward leaders received about, you know, thousands of dollars in donations from the from the now representative. And one of them even got a job out of it, who gets paid seventy dollars. I'm shocked. Se- I'm shocked. Seventy thousand dollars <laughs> of, of my constituents' money goes towards paying off this this debt. So the machine, I think, um, it promotes the system of if you give us homage and you pay into us, then we, yeah. you might be in a position one day where you can get something out of it. That one day we'll be able to put our hands on the levers and get you get you where you want to be. And look, Representative Eisenstein's a state rep right now. I'm not. So that's what their investment into the into the machine got them. Um, yeah. You know, this election, I think, is very different, right? I think it's different because, again, um, we're going in front of the voters. It's not just something that the machine can kind of put their thumb on the scale. The second ward continues to have an open process and be one of the only truly open wards in this uh, in this campaign. We presented. They're not able to come up with an endorsement, but we secured more votes than any other candidate. So, right. you know, there's definitely good folks out there who, who respect being, you know, clued in on this process. And, you know, I, you know, I feel confident in our ability to kind of keep this momentum going. So let me ask, because I think it's really important. There's, you're better 100% simply, like, it's, it's enough that there's a corrupt, undemocratically um, kind of, I mean, almost fraudulently elected person sitting in that 175th position. But also... 
it's enough to take down somebody who's representing the machine, who's kind of part of this nepotistic homage system. Um, and also it's enough to take somebody down who's not even trying and doesn't need to try to know the needs of the people, doesn't need to knock on the doors. But what specifically have you learned in knocking on those doors um, that combined with your values differentiates you from whatever the machine might actually happen to do? We know that they're throwing undocumented people under the bus because that helps, you know, private industry, right? For e-verify mm-hmm. is my understanding. Yeah. So, so, so what, what are some places where the machine's interests don't actually align with the people's interests as far as you've been able to determine? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I said earlier that the, the district houses the kind of birthplace of our democracy. It's also where a very simple premise was devised, which is that governance requires consent of the governed. And that principle is something that the machine clearly is comfortable just sort of discarding for their own for their own benefit. Well, it's um, a big pain in the neck. Come on. What are you <laughs> yeah. supposed yeah. to do? Listen to people? Hey, yeah. Sure. Yeah. hey I'm yeah. working here. Bobby, you want to get a job? I well, and, and, you know, this is, this is when people think that they're owed something. As opposed right. to you know wanting to be public servants, then that that kind of can get that sort of feedback can get in the way. Um, They're in favor of entitlements just for their friends, yeah, yeah. Not for the people. Well, and I think for me, it, you know, is there are there specific kind of policy planks that differ? I don't know if it's quite that granular, but what I would say is that I, I think it's a lack of um, adhesion to the policy, right? I mean, way back when a campaign I had worked on when I was just out of school. The Democratic ward leader, I was working for a guy running for office against the Republican. The Democratic ward leader said, um, you should vote for this guy. But if he doesn't win, you know, the other guy's good, too. And I was thinking, <laughs> well, that, this is a, you know, this was a Republican. He had made, you know, um, he had sort of made anti-Latino comments on the House floor. He had stolen $10 million. Like, no, he's not good. But I think that just kind of demonstrates that the machine, again, it's not that we may differ on policy X or Y, but it's just that they don't care where you're at on policy. It's just, do you get down with them? Right. Do you give the ward leaders the money on election day? Do you pay for the city committee dinner, which is, again, just another shakedown for candidates? Um, it's, it's just, do you do this? But for example, I imagine since I, I saw a tweet with you talking to Penn students. Yeah. And, and the tweet was talking about a living wage because I think... For people who come from one thing that I've I've really thought about is it almost doesn't matter what your class background is to an extent. Um, capitalism is beautiful in that it makes everyone precarious. <laughs> yeah. Like you you could have more income than somebody say in Denmark, but still be more precarious because yeah. that could change like that. You don't have access necessarily to healthcare. You could lose your home. Um, so you know when it comes to talking about um, a living wage, when it comes to talking about student debt forgiveness. Other economic issues relating to um, wealth inequality, what what would you say you'd be fighting for that the machine might not be in favor of? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think student debt forgiveness is a you know I don't I don't think I need I don't think this is like shocking when we think about the average age of a you know of a ward leader or of someone who's part of who's been part of this system for 20, 30, 40 years, right? And I think that there. Uh, and we see this a lot of just kind of boomer culture. There's this, oh, you know, the millennials, they just don't want to work for anything. As, you yeah. know, someone says from their their position that they... Have you tried the OK Boomer response to Mary <laughs> Isaacson? Because that might work. No, I... I <laughs> maybe, maybe. You should try it. Consider it. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you can kind of just imagine this, right? So you have someone who's, who's sitting in a, a, a taxpayer-funded job with a nice pension and the security that comes with having a good government job for a long period of time. 
And then when I start talking about $15 minimum wage, now all of a sudden that's a problem for the economy, right? Or when I talk about student debt forgiveness, the response is, well, you know, these kids, they just have to learn how to like manage things better, you know, like <laughs> all of this stuff. And it comes from this position of detachment, right? So the, the machine can be an insulating, you know, it kind of insulates them from really, I think, recognizing these problems. So is there, again, a profound policy difference? I don't know. Do I think that there is a detachment that comes from I've paid homage into this thing. It's taken care of When I was their age, I worked really hard to get that nepotistic inside track. Right, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and and then it's, it's, you know, oh, it's kids not working hard enough or it's, you know, it's it's their own damn fault. College is too expensive or, you know, no one told them to be social workmate. You know, like you kind of hear this from, you know, ward leaders and, and committee people and stuff. So I think it's, I don't know if it's, you know, I believe in X, they believe in Y. I think it's a detachment from it. And I also think that, again, it's always the machine's, you know, line that comes first. Yeah. Um, so may- maybe you can tell us a little bit about like the state of kind of Pennsylvania uh, legislative politics in general. Um, Shitty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not good, folks. It's not good. Uh, but, you know, so it's like a kind of a swingy, you know, sometimes sometimes red tilting, sometimes blue tilting state um but the legislature if i'm not mistaken has been largely controlled by republicans though uh the the governor is the governor a democrat mm-hmm. okay oh, yeah and that's fairly recent right we still got pat toomey in there though yep. um but like what what is the sort of state of play of uh you know the the parties in sort of contesting you know, control of the legislature. Like I've heard people say before that, uh, you know, if you're a Democrat, in some senses, the the state house can be kind of a dead end because you kind of can't do much and that it's better to try to like jump up to city council in Philly or something like that uh, because, you know, you could actually affect something. Um, but then again, that that smacks of sort of like learned helplessness yeah. you know democrats power to the republicans yeah, yeah and like are people trying trying to formulate some kind of strategy to get out into the hinterlands and try to like try to fight some of these districts but also and, like with with your success on, on guns and, and um combating domestic violence yeah that too th- there's got i mean there's got to be a way to have a coalition with look the whole Trump phenomenon is is of a, of a piece with a break from traditional Republican approaches to at least economics and, and maybe to other things. So, so have you thought more about what you could bring that's uh, somewhat new, or or maybe learn from the ways that you've been successful before in um, in making change happen despite being in the minority party? Yeah. Well, let me. So let me just kind of talk to the first part of that. Sure. Um, you know, I I think some with regards to the state of play, some notable changes that could really shift the kind of paradigm in the next couple of years. Um, the first of which is that I think there are socialists and uh, democratic socialists and you know really strong progressives um, recalibrating the party in key parts of the state. So uh, you know, and I'd say this from a background in gun violence prevention. You know, in the western part of the state, in the you know Allegheny County and Pittsburgh, um, there were Democrats who were just horrible, who made every bad vote on gun violence prevention policies. Yeah, and some of those folks lost their seats. Mm, um, to, mm. you know, democratic socialists. So it's nice to see that there's this recalibration on the left before we even get into a position where we might actually have the majority, which, you know, knock wood can, can happen. Absolutely. So that I think is a real big paradigm shift. And we're seeing that kind of throughout a lot of districts within Pennsylvania in the House and the Senate. 
Um, additionally, you know, we're coming up on reapportionment where the lines will get redrawn. Now, oh I, I, yeah, and look, I partisan gerrymandering is is bad when any party does it, and I I'm, I believe that. Conversely, there have been twenty years of Republican gerrymandering. Now, I think that there's a way to, you know, remedy some of that unevenness without necessarily having to tilt it so that it's the most liberal districts that we can think of, right? So I think that there is a balancing act there. And I think it is going to put some more seats in the play. So I, I think that's going to come up. And and for some of these, you know, Republican districts that have been drawn to, you know, ice out every other cul-de-sac or, you know, stretch 10 counties just so they can get every conservative voter in a, you know, right. 100 mile right. radius, right, right, right. you know, the, that will be rectified in some capacity. And I think it was just even the state of play a little bit. And Democrats may have a chance to pick up seats to get closer to the majority. Is there a proposal for like a nonpartisan type of uh, a like commission or something to do that? There, there, there have been. Um, unfortunately, changing the Pennsylvania Constitution is very difficult. It requires two pieces of legislation to pass consecutively, which is just... I mean, it's it's hard <laughs> to pass any piece of legislation, let alone doing it two times in a row. Yeah. Um, so that effort failed. Conversely, you know, um, I, I, I do think that because of the way the the committee that's selected that's going to draw this will be determined, there might be a capacity, again, just to kind of... Some of these seats have been really badly drawn. And I think there's just going to be a chance to make them a little bit more even, a little bit more in play. Um, so I think that those are two big things that can change the makeup of, of what's going on next in Pennsylvania. Now, to the other question about working with Republicans, you know, I, I, I think... I don't want to sound hokey. I think it, some of it comes down to listening. You know, some of it comes down to finding out what, what are actual concerns and what aren't. If there's a way to find common ground, if there's a complaint about a system not working, then we can fix it. And I think sometimes, you know, some of those goals align. You know, there there can be supreme differences about the fracking industry and what we allow it to do or, you know, pillage, right, and what we don't. But one, one thing that seems to be really common is, hey, we need to keep investing into the Department of Environmental Protection, Right. Because there are a lot of folks who may be in favor of fracking, but don't like turning on their spigot and having brown water come out. Right. So, you know, I think, you know, there 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 are some ways that we can approach this. Right. Um, and then we can have the, the big policy debates after that. So we build up our DEP and then we turn around and put a ban on fracking, you know, until we can do that. Right. Or maybe we can even leverage that to do that. Um, you know, and, and I think there's there's some movement for some of these issues and especially on some of our progressive stuff. Right. I think. I would hope that in the next couple of years, we can probably get closer to making members of the LGBT community a protected class in Pennsylvania. Right. That'd be great. I, I can't I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. And I think we can get there. So I think that there are some things that we can do. And, and of course, there's just going to be some things that we're going to have to just duke it out on and and be, you know, be the winners on because they're right. just, you know. That's what politics entails sometimes, right. just winning. Yeah. Just, just making it not worth it for the other side to contest because you have the support of the people. Right. And that's part of what knocking all those doors does for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, do you think the Green New Deal for PA is something that that you might um, fight hard for? Is something that we could we could win? Yeah, I mean, it's something I'm going to fight hard for. I mean, it, it's something that we has to happen a to address our our climate crisis, which we just failed to do in any meaningful way, and then b because it is just this opportunity to invest in marginalized and impacted communities, and it's also a way to kind of put our workforce a little bit back into into back to work, right? So I always chafe when people talk about the fracking industry and it's, oh, if you get rid of this, then you lose all these jobs in the southwestern part of the state. That's not accurate. 
Um, the franking industry has been pretty unapologetic about lying about the fact that they don't hire Pennsylvania workers. They usually say, oh, it's because they can't pass a drug test. That's, you know, BS. Yeah. Um, additionally, the kind of jobs that get created because of that are like, you know, waiters at the diner because there's now more people going to the diner. Right. Or, or people at the, you know, more concierges in a hotel. And I'm not saying that those aren't important jobs. But there's always a timestamp on them that once that industry goes away, that they were going to go. Whereas if we look at something like a Green New Deal, that can actually put people to work in a much more long form and meaningful and long term way. But to get back to something that's at the heart of our campaign, we can only talk about a Green New Deal if we're prepared to stand up to our campaign contributors who might be opposed to it. I think it's rich when my opponent goes out there and says, well, I'm in favor of Green New Deal and green jobs are blue jobs. And 53% of the money that they raised last year came from folks who generally oppose a Green New Deal. So, again, you know, if, if you're willing to hurt vulnerable people at the request of those people, how are you really going to, you know, roll up your sleeves, duke it out with Republicans about a Green New Deal when your own campaign coffers don't want it? If you're willing to be deceptive about how you got on the ballot and you're willing to be deceptive about evading the democratic process to, to be the incumbents, you're probably going to lie about whether you're kind of – uh, you know, bound up with those special interests who funded you and, and the machine, and you're going to pretend that you're speaking for the people. So that makes good sense. Yeah. Well, and we, I mean, and we've got to be able to do it. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just about, and we have it easy, right? I mean, my finance person doesn't think we have it easy, right? Raising a people funded campaign is hard. But nevertheless, the best thing is, is, you know, when we win in April and we have the opportunity to go to Harrisburg to do the people's work. We don't have to worry about someone calling us up and saying, if you really want $50,000 again, you, you can't support a Green New Deal. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Sorry to offend all the Joe Biden voters out there, but I, I remember watching him talking to people at a town hall of some sort and saying, you know, it's not just straight corruption out there. It's, it's you, you know, people give you $200,000 and they become your friends and they call you and they want to talk to you and you want to you want to listen to them because they're your friends and they helped you in a time of need. And so you just listen and, you know, sometimes you just help your friends when they help you. So um, it's not that. that right. It's not what you're going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, an another attitude, you know, speaking of like Tammany Hall, is a, a, a sort of lost tradition in American history is is the idea that you should just shank your your campaign contributors. Like I think it was Henry, Henry Clay Frick said about Theodore Roosevelt. Like we bought him and the son of a bitch didn't stay bought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or that uh, I think it was Jesse Unruh, who's like a California state rep said it's like if you can't take their money, eat their food, drink their whiskey, and sleep with their women and still vote against them, you have no business being in politics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, I mean But but you know, so that that, that mindset can be there. Yeah. How, however it clearly is not. How, well and when you are Do you so drink whiskey, Jeff? <laughs> I was say and when you're so dependent on them though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we and and look, the money matters. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, when people assess whether or not you're viable, the first question that they're going to ask you is, how much money do you have? Let's As see they, your Rolodex, buddy. Right. So then what happens is, you know, for my opponent, it's very easy. They get to go out there and tout this huge number, regardless of who it came from, how much it came from, you know, small sources, and then whether or not those sources have caused them or will cause them to make horrible policy decisions. So, you know, that that mindset, I can appreciate it. Um, I just probably, you know, I always think of the, there's there's a version of that in the West Wing, right, where yeah. you know, the Alan Alda character says, if you can't, you know, 
eat their drink their booze and eat their food and vote against them. They need to get out of this business. Yeah. But that that becomes a lot harder to do. And I think we have to be honest about how difficult oh, it, that is for yeah, and it, it's the metal that's required Everyone to do that. Donate. And we're then, gonna give the link to donate to Jeff, and there's gonna be a good event we're gonna promote so you can help the the people funded. Yeah, it campaign. does. Yeah, it, it doesn't happen now for whatever reason. It clearly is not the case. Well, I, that, I think it doesn't happen because there's always a promise for more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, because then it's like, well, if I do this. Then I'm never going to get this this money again, and, yeah, that's, and then, that's what scares I think the the electeds from making that kind of courageous decision. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's you know the the you the whole system. I would say it seems to breed up a, a class of people who are just sort of just dish rags, you know, who who kind of go along to get along. Like you, you need a, some very serious strength of character to make that kind of decision. To, to, right, to, I believe you wrote "limp dishrag <laughs> Democrats" is, is the, the phrase. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, you. It's like that you want. Say we like about Teddy Roosevelt. He was a terrible person, I think, in general. But uh, he had a very. He was very vigorous. You know, he 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 wouldn't take shit from people, and 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 um, that you just you know Rahm Emanuel. You imagine him making that kind of. It was just like covering up this this timid, squalling little infant with a you know coating of swear words and a, one a missing finger from a well. And the, and the thing machine. is, when you're not bought by others, you can negotiate with some integrity and actually with leverage because they yeah. can't just go behind your back and say, "Hey, your guy's not doing what we paid him to do," or he, you know, your, your opponents know that you're speaking for the people, and you must be negotiating from a place of actual representative interest. So they can't so easily outmaneuver you, right? Because yeah. they know that, well, you know what, the machine backing you is not going to want that once I talk to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the I mean, the good thing for us is that um, because we're people funded, we've got to work a lot harder. You know, we've got to be out there every night knocking doors seven days a week, whether it's, you know, raining or cold or windy. But that's a better process anyway, because it goes right to the voter. It goes right to the people who we're trying to, you know, represent in this position. So, you know, having this, it, it makes us work harder, but I think it also makes us a little bit better as a result. What, what have you learned in knocking that? So for at the national level, I think the, the number one thing you hear, um, whatever the campaign is, we want to beat Trump. So as we're going to vote for you. Tell us how you're going to beat Trump. Is there something that um, that you hear because it's a different kind of thing when you're running for the state um, senate? So, so what are you hearing that people really want um, more than anything? There's probably a lot of interests being served, a lot of policies people care about. But is is there something common or that you hear a lot that is kind of um, unifying the people in your district um, and what they want you to do for them? Yeah, I, I think the two things I hear, um, you know, one's kind of very abstract and the other one's very technical. The abstract is that they want someone who aligns their values. Mm. You know, these are people who, who are very, um, you know, they're very proud to talk about wanting to protect others. You know, I can't tell you the number of houses that have the, and you know, I don't know what so you mean. signs, yeah. Yeah, these signs that say right. like, you know, no person's illegal or, you know, we protect undocumented citizens. Right. We, no stand, hates, we stand with right. the following communities. So, I mean, there's You didn't this, know what we would think of that? What do you think? No, no. Yeah. It's permissible in certain <laughs> locations. Well, and yeah, I mean, but, you know. They're called the suburbs. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I won't say anything. Joking, else. joking. I, no, no, joking. I, I won't. I won't make any jokes. We they get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> you know, but but so there's a there's a there's a desire to see their values there. And, you know, we talked about do do they push back when I talk about, a, you know, the real economy or giving people an actual chance <laughs> trying to like, you know, 
take on some of these systemic issues. No, I, I don't get pushback because I think there's a genuine desire to want to do that sort of good policy work, that good work. So that's the, the abstract. The, the more finite thing is, and this is certainly more expressed in some parts of my district than others, but they want to know that there's someone who's going to go there and, and do the work, you know, who, who can maneuver in those halls. And when I talk about my experiences on the state level, you know, I have a decade of experience working in or around Harrisburg. Um, talk about my background in gun violence prevention, specifically trying to change gun laws, not trying to just, you know, virtue signal, but really trying to like change legislation. People, I think, really appreciate that quality. So I think, you know, there's some folks who just want to make sure that their values are being met. And, you know, I would argue that they currently aren't. And then there's some people who want to know that someone can go there, you know, in and anybody's place. Machine and, and people are lazy, right? Like, because they don't need to work. Whereas, right. you know, you're going to run for the people. And so the people are going to look at what you actually do. And that's where the funding comes from. That's where the support comes from. So you're going to be motivated to, to kind of cut deals. I mean, Bernie Sanders, person of the people, he's known as the Amendment King, mm-hmm. right? Despite so, so this is an interesting thing, right? Despite being a Democratic Socialist, despite you know caucusing with the Democrats but not being willing to sometimes identify as a Democrat, he still <laughs> has a tremendous record, basically making deals, and, and that is something you can do despite having very strong values and fighting for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I and I think, you know, some of my experience lends into that. And I think that's why people are sort of excited, especially, you know, the the areas that are a little bit more concerned about that. And we do really well in those areas. And we can kind of tell that, you know, they, they appreciate that quality. I don't know. This is all a little bit disturbing to me. I mean, it sounds it's it sounds like you're in the pocket of big people. Yeah. Well. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the they, don't, they, don't, they don't pay well. No. <laughs> yeah. No. No. But we we are. And look, that's what it has to be about, right? I mean, like, I don't mean to sound. Jeff, when did you become a good guy? This yeah, is just this is concerning. Uh, I well, I don't. I don't. I don't think uh, Representative Isaacson would think that about me, right? Um, they well, don't, it's, it's in the, the machine. The machine, does, think the machine doesn't like being called out. Um, does the machine think? Yeah. Wow. They, yeah. they attack. Um, you know, I, I like a protoplasm, you know, like an amoeba. Well, yeah, yeah like just a, kind of instinctively. Yeah. Um, but you know, I look. I have really fundamental beliefs about government and what it can do and what it should do, and that you know, quite frankly, what it has to do. I think it's the only institution that's large enough to do it um, to tackle our issues, to tackle systemic inequality, to tackle climate change, to tackle our opioid crisis. So I, you know, I have this fundamental belief it helps drive what I think government needs to do. And, you know, I've seen when it fails people, when it fails people who can't afford their student loans, when it fails people by cutting, you know, social programs, there's a social safety net. Um, when people really struggle, you know, I've done more SNAP applications for folks in my life than probably, you know, certainly any of the other people running in this race, including the incumbent. Um, so, I mean, I've seen what happens when government lets people down, and I've also seen what happens when it, when it can do some good. Um, the, the base root of the word wealth is, you know, good. It means good. So the commonwealth is, literally translates to the common good, and that's what its, its politic has to be about, you know, the common good. How can we pursue policies that are in that interest and not based off of what we're owed or what we think is best for us or our, right. our machine or our organization? It yeah. has to be about that public good. Well, here's a, a sort of hypothetical for you. So suppose you, you know, you win the primary and God willing, you manage to defeat the Republican if they run one in this Democrat D plus 30 district. Um, you know, and let's say further that the Democrats somehow get their stuff together enough to take the sort of trifecta. They got the Senate and the, the House and the, the governor. 
what do you do? What's your like first few moves? You know, what what do you want to introduce? And President Bernie Sanders, Ryan. <laughs> President Bernie Sanders. Well, we, we well, no. yeah. This how, is a, you, it's a hypothetical. How man. are you, you going to make whatever you did, want? I think I think you maybe just described utopia. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. How are you going to spend your hundred billion dollars in Bernie bucks delivered? <laughs> That's exactly right. Delivered by helicopter to the Pennsylvania State House. Yep. <laughs> no, but like state state bills are the Democratic trifecta. What what what's your like top priority? Sort of maybe some reach goals or some yep. you know some like stuff that needs to be cleaned up. What would what do you do? Yeah. So um, there's a bevy of gun bills that that I'd like to pursue. We have no waiting periods, which are just just disastrous. Um, you know, we have no permit to purchase, meaning if you've never touched a firearm, you can you can pick one up and walk right out with it. Um, you know, so there's a there's a whole lot on gun control, gun violence prevention, specifically also to trying to untangle this concept of preemption, which hamstrings local municipalities from enacting their own gun laws. So I think, you know, in the gun violence prevention arena, that's that's the top three right off the bat. Um, in terms of reproductive health, in 2011, there were a series of laws passed called commonly known as trap laws. These were laws that created a ridiculous amount of uh, requirements that abortion providers had to meet in order to stay operational. These requirements weren't in anyone's interest. They weren't in a health focus. They were really just meant to be tedious yeah. and cause uh, abortion providers to shutter their doors. And they did that. So our district actually has one of the uh, has an abortion provider in it that provides services for women literally from the five county region. That's shameful. Um, yeah. The idea that there's folks in Chester who can't have access to to reproductive health care is just tragic. So I'd like to repeal those trap laws. I'd like to, um, you know, introduce a Green New Deal. But I think we've got to start by bringing the, you know, I think New York did it in an interesting way where before they even started writing the language, they brought in environmental justice groups and social justice groups to help kind of craft this language. And I think that's a good way to go about it. So I think we need to unpanel those folks first and then start working on, you know, building up a Green New Deal for Pennsylvania and then, you know, additionally, uh, you know, in terms of the LGBT community, you know, Pennsylvania is still, like I said, members of the LGBT community are not a protected class. Moreover, Pennsylvania is one of the only law, uh, only one of this, one of the only states in the U.S. that has no laws on the books banning gay conversion camps. I'd actually like to criminalize those because I view them as a form of, of child abuse. Um, also, I think that they'd have a better trajectory in the legislature if, if they ran through different a judiciary committee versus a health committee but that's yeah. sort of really in the weeds um and then i think the final thing you know that i'd really like to sort of tackle um you know we have to get our economy working for everyday people you know there is a real economy out there and that means increasing the minimum wage and means working on some sort of housing guarantee you know, Philadelphia has over 1,000 unsheltered and unhoused citizens, mm. you know, and, and we, we have to institute policies to get people, you know, just some of the basics in terms of a roof over their head, but also a livable wage. Um, and then, and then of course, as someone who's still paying off her college loans, it'd be nice yeah. to try to rein in some, some college loans and, you know, give students Absolutely. an actual chance once they get out of university and into the workforce to be able to like live. And, and do you feel like there's more, energy now behind pushing for those really obvious things that people deserve to have basic necessities met, you know, shelter, uh, forgiveness of just 
debilitating debt, all these things you're speaking of, uh, despite you know the, what we've talked about in terms of the Republicans in power, it seems to be there's a movement going on that, I mean, for, for the Democratic Socialist, Bernie Sanders, is capturing people who used to identify as Republican or traditionally thought you know the economy was just working uh, according to how the status quo said it would work, um, but it's not. You know, the existential crisis of climate change, it seems like maybe this is a time where you can really push for these kinds of things. Um, are the kind of conversations you're looking forward to having with with people that uh, hopefully you'll be uh, making legislation with that you kind of pull them over to a place maybe they've never been before? Yeah, I mean, we definitely do that with guns, right? Because I think for so often it's like, oh, I'm in favor of background check. I'm like, that's great. But like, there's a lot more we can be doing. And I yeah. think that you kind of see that, that just that a little bit of a, a I don't want to call it a shallowness because that's a little bit too negative. But there's just not a comprehensive understanding of all of the ways that we neglect to tackle this issue. Um, but, you know, to all of these conversations, look, they're never going to happen if we don't listen. You know, we're in an era where you can project whatever image of yourself you want online. It's easy to come across <laughs> as like, you know, the most progressive or the the most ideological or the most the most ripped. Right. I mean, there's like these things. Like you, Paul Ryan and CrossFit. Am I yeah. Right? Like <laughs> you can you can just do this and you can just put it out there. And, and obviously the tech companies aren't interested in, you know, correcting the record or making sure politicians don't lie. Um, but, you so know, fake abs, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. President. <laughs> yeah. Those are not real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and, and look, we have a president who who really basks in this. Right. I mean, he loves spitting out a lie. Every other word. He's the most healthy president in, in modern history. Right. Like, yeah. So but we're in this era where it's easy to really put an image of yourself out there and have people believe it. And sadly, it coincides at a time where good journalists, good people having conversations can be a little harder to find. Right. There's 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 a lot more conversations out there. Um, but as we see, you know, the you know, certain industries die off, especially like in the news realm, it's a little harder to follow local politicians. Right. It's easy yeah. to get angry at like, you know, the governor of three states over who steals money. It's a lot harder to pay attention to the state senator in your own backyard. Right. It's a little yeah. easier to, to read what Trump's tweets are and get outraged. It's a little harder to read about what's going on in your own zoning meeting or your own neighborhood association meeting. And that that's just unfortunately reflective of our time. So what that means is these conversations can only be had if we're not, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid that, oh, you know, this rep that I have is just so progressive. Look at this money they're talking about pumping into the economy or, you know, look what they said. They said gay people are good. So therefore, they must be a champion of LGBT rights or they said that they don't like Trump. So therefore, they must be voting in a way that doesn't enable his agenda. And that's a little harder, you know, and that's why it's challenging because we've got to listen. The movement's growing, but we've got to be able to really listen and pay attention to where it's kind of growing from. And then we can become a part of it. Right. What do you think about things like a job guarantee or universal basic income? Just curious. Yeah, I mean, I've always been in favor of universal basic income. I can't imagine any reason why I wouldn't be in favor of a jobs guarantee. I mean, I really believe people want to work and want to provide for themselves and, and their loved ones. Right. And, you know, in my my dad's in, my dad's experiences of being unemployed, um, you know, th those are tough. I mean, it's tough on families. It's tough on the, the obviously the physical. And, you know, do we can we afford, you know, do we do we afford groceries or do we keep the lights on right those decisions are just brutal decisions to make for the physical but they're also brutal on the psyche as well absolutely and i you know no family should have to do that and that's i think that's one thing that people don't understand about growing up struggling uh you know from really working class backgrounds is that that lack of security that your 
you know, one hot water heater away from having to make these kinds of decisions or you're, you're one car. And the guilt, the, the psychological damage it does, because then you feel morally responsible as if under capitalism, you're the agent right. that caused that, that terrible yeah. outcome. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's sort of the added, I mean, that's the added insult to injury, right? Because you still have to make this survival-based decision. Look, and we talked about guns and fall. suicides, things yeah. like that. I mean, don't you think it would reduce the number of, of violence incidents, whether it's murder or assault, if we could have not just mental health care provided, but people not having the precarity, if they had universal basic income or guaranteed homes as part of maybe a Green New Deal. These are things that don't just address economic issues, but really issues that help solidify not only one's own mental health and well-being, but the social relations in the family and the community. These are all connected. Yeah, I mean, you see suicide rates go up as unemployment goes up. And I mean, that's not a coincidence, right? I mean, those aren't two you know, mutually exclusive things. I mean, they're, they're absolutely intertwined. Um, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, I, I would be in favor of, you know, universal basic income and, you know, and a jobs guarantee. Even the racists in the suburbs de- deserve those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not all in the suburbs, right? That's true. I Wherever mean, racists yeah. are, they too. This is a funny thing with, with Bernie Sanders and, and kind of the, the battles with the more centrist establishment Dems. It's like, I hate you right now, but I want you to have health care. Like, I, I don't care how we differ on certain issues, but I care for you regardless. Yeah, we're all in the same boat, you know, healthcare wise. Think about pandemic. Even the racists got to be able to go to the doctor and get their vaccine or their test or whatever. By the way, was, was everyone in this room not pissed when Nancy Pelosi is, well, if we come up with a vaccine for the coronavirus, it should be affordable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, motherfucker, if you can't provide a free vaccine for a global pandemic, the this, fuck this point is, no, no. is there you're, having you? You're being very unfair. This, this is erasing the history of how they got rid of smallpox, which is when they went around Somalia and made everybody pay a nickel to get their smallpox vaccine before the, you know, WHO workers could inject them with it. Anyway, we're getting a little off track here. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, maybe Jeff, uh, any, um, any questions you you know you wish we'd had asked here before uh, before we sort of wrap things up here? Things you wanted to mention? Yeah, no, I mean I really appreciate this opportunity, and you know I think the conversation that you guys are having is important. I you know I'm a political. I know you guys are political philosophers. Um, Not me. Yeah, I'm I, a political dullard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Actually, I, I, you talk I, about housing. He's written a great policy paper on housing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you talk about it a little bit, Ryan? What, Oh, this, oh, so this could be an interest, you know, um, social housing. Uh, I, I wrote a paper for the People's Policy Project with, uh, Peter Gowan, who actually wrote more of it than me. So I'm not the, the primary. Ryan, author we're not on the right um, here. We're not measuring and competing in every <laughs> fucking thing. Just talk about I'm just your saying, damn paper. He, he knows what he's talking about more than me on this. But at any rate, the, the idea is, you know, uh, this is probably less necessary in a place like Philly, but you could still do it. But especially in, say, New York City, San Francisco, D.C., you know, you you basically have the state, the even municipalities step in with, uh, you know, to address housing shortages directly with uh, state-owned housing units that are made sort of mixed income, um, um, self, self-financing, self-supporting with a, through that mixed income nature. So it's not like public housing where everyone has to be poor, you know, public housing in the American sense. But uh, social housing, like in uh, like the uh, Karl Marxhof in Vienna, um, where you have lots of different people who can be paying lots of different rents, and therefore you know the the thing can sort of support itself, and you don't get 
like in the New York City Housing Authority, you know, decades behind on your capital budget and maintenance. Um, and, you know, that's something that would re- that would require federal reforms to be even be able to do that. Uh, on, on the state level, you wouldn't have but, to. Well, I mean, you could maybe set up an entirely alternative system, but there are like a lot of obstacles. We don't need to need to get into that. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's that's something that that, uh, you know, given a favorable federal climate, uh, uh, the Pennsylvania could jump in and uh try to try to take advantage of that you know it doesn't strike me as something republicans would immediately try to fight you on. oh they would absolutely go ape shit they're (laughs) yeah (laughs) but worth fighting for though yeah 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 well i you know and i think you need i mean as as someone who's running for office and appreciates this platform i i would encourage you to have more candidates on Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's you know, it's not a question that you didn't ask, but I think it's it's something that I I'm really honored to get to do this, and and I think that you're in good company a, with Heidi Sloan so far. Yeah, yeah. good company. So I mean, I, I think you could you could bring some more folks on. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Their ideas. So um, plugs. You got some stuff. You got a, a, a tell great us fundraising event. Your, it's also entertaining. Yeah. Coming up very shortly for Web's, the locals that are listening. Website. Oh, that, was, that was good. That was, that was, that was true. Yeah. Website donation concert. Yeah, yeah, tell us, tell us all on. about it. Yeah, sure. So the website is, uh, this is amazing. Uh, the website <laughs> is uh, jeffforphilly.com. Uh, that's J-E-F-F-F-O-R-P-H-I-L-L-Y.com. Yeah. Um, you can see where we're at on some of the issues. You can also make a contribution if you have the capacity to do so. Um, additionally, we are having a, a benefit concert, Rage Against the Donald. Uh, it's at the Fire Bar <laughs> uh, at 4th and Girard. Um, it's $10 to enter some of the, you know, we're going to have the band upholstery there along with a bunch of others. You can probably see flyers all throughout, um, all throughout the Fishtown area. And look, you know, we're a grassroots campaign, which means, you know, I, I may have, I may have already shot myself in the foot, but we're always looking for people to help us canvas and do doors. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, it's worth it. unfortunately we are relentless in doing them. So I may Tell have shot what, myself if, in the if, foot by if, talking about how much of them we do. If you help out with Jeff's campaign, Ryan and I will have a beer with you. <laughs> There you go. So, and, and I'm going to go to the event. I'm going to go to the, the fundraising event. Ryan, you want to go? Sure. Yeah. Okay. We're going to be might. there, so you can get you know talk to us, shoot the shit. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, we may have to discuss whether that would turn more people off than it would bring on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, come come see some Pico celebrities in the, the <laughs> tenth ray podcast universe. Yeah, and and you know, look, the elections on April twenty eighth, and the most important thing that we can all do is you know just brush up and know who your candidates are, and make sure you go out and vote. Yeah, Je- well, Jeff is a wonderful guy. I can tell. I can more yeah. than Bush can see into the soul of Putin. I can see <laughs> into Jeff's soul. He's a great guy, but more than that, he's fighting for all of you. So help support him. Um, these local races are just as important as the national race. So yeah, relative you know, everybody to your ability to influence help, the outcome. Help fight the machine. Rage against the machine, as it were. And, and the uh, Donald. And the Donald. Yeah. Cool. Th- we'll post all we'll post links to all that stuff in the description. Thanks for joining um, us. You're always welcome on, especially once you win and tell us about all the, the good fights you're fighting, and we can put pressure on those <laughs> assholes on the other side. You get to be the people that hold me accountable. That's like it. it. Yeah. That's us. We'll do it too. We'll, we're we'll, do, a, we'll do a call in line. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks again, Jeff. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>